At one point, more than 100 people were standing in line in spite of the freezing cold weather. Uh, blustery weather would not deter them from what they had come for, and they were ready. Uh, for the, the convenience store had never done so much business, and this was on Christmas Day. The store wasn't even supposed to be open, but there were so many people that the owner himself stood at the cash register, and people were all buying the same thing, a lottery ticket. It was huge, one of the hugest halls in our country. In the end, there was one lucky buyer from another state, and everybody else was left with a flimsy piece of worthless paper, a monument to what might have been. Why do we waste our time and hard-earned money on buying lottery tickets? What is it about money that holds such power over us? That we're, attempt, that we're tempted to engage in such low percentage pursuits. How can we break the grip that money holds over us? John Wesley said that the wallet is the last thing of a Christian to be confirmed. He said you can give your life to Christ, you can come to worship, you can read the Bible, you can pray, but the last thing, the hardest thing, is to obey what God has to say about managing money. Many people struggle with managing money. A recent survey found that 25% of Americans are always or nearly always have difficulty meeting monthly expenses. And 50% say they live with anxiety over money. I think that number is low. I don't care what your financial level is. Most people have some worries about money. Nor are we doing a good job of training our children about managing money. A RAND youth poll, which is conducted every year, found that 71% of teenagers describe themselves as wasteful in their shopping and spending habits. Why? Because only 24% believe their parents are conservative in their buying. 76% of teenagers think their parents are wasting money in their buying habits. If you're not a church person... You may be surprised to learn that the Bible has a lot to say about managing money. 16 out of Jesus' 38 parables deal with money. More is said about money in the Bible than heaven and hell combined. Five times more is said about money than about prayer. Prayer and faith is mentioned in 500 verses in the New Testament. Money and possessions are talked about in 2,000 verses. We have guardrails uh, on roads all around our country. Guardrails are used to keep cars from straying into dangerous areas. Last week I talked about how about guardrails in other areas of our lives that we could get into far more danger. And I suggested the number one guardrail I feel that Jesus taught about money. Uh, teenager, young single, young married, the time to learn God's principles about money is while you're young. They will serve you well through your parenting years and in through your senior years. Here was the first principle that I shared with you last week. God owns everything. You own nothing. Uh, I think this is the most important thing I learned from Jesus about money management. 
Uh, we're taught in our culture that you earned your money, so you're free to spend it any way you want. You say, that's right. I made it, and I get to decide how I spend it. But when it comes to the Bible, we have to back away from that sort of thinking. God says you don't own anything. He owns it all. He just allows you to manage it for the years you're on earth. Moses says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my pans my hands have produced this wealth for me. This is the philosophy of our day. But here's what God says. But remember, the Lord's your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. King David writes, Lord, everything in heaven and earth is yours. God, you own it all. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And he says this as they're about to offer gifts to him. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. He says, God owns everything. You own nothing. It's easy to think that, you know, I've worked so hard for what I have. It's my house, it's my car, it's my investments. Whenever I get confused about money and how to deal with it, I get a lot of clarity when I remember that it's not my money. Every Sunday, my wife, Jory, and our two youngest daughters watch our live stream at home. When I got home last week, my daughter said, hey, Dad, it's not your money. You should give us more for shopping. So they were listening. Whenever I look at my resources this way, that it's not mine, it's God's, it makes every financial decision a spiritual one. I don't own anything. God does. Since you don't own anything that you possess, then you have to have an open hand and say, God, what do you want me to do with what you've given me? I believe one of the reasons God asks us to give back to him the first tenth or a significant percentage is every time we give, it reminds us that we don't own anything, that he owns it all. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. Here we're going to learn a second guardrail, I think the second most important guardrail Jesus teaches about money. This is one of Jesus' most fascinating parables about money. In this parable, Jesus tells us about man, a man who was a crook. He was dishonest, and the owner of the business found out about it and called him in and basically terminated him. Uh, he lost his job. He had no hope for reconciliation with his boss. But what could he do to secure himself in the future? And he decided he could lower the bills that his master's clients owed him. So here we go. Jesus tells this parable. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. You're done. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. Maybe he was a wimp 
or maybe he was older in age, and I'm ashamed to beg. He says, I'm not going to hold a cardboard sign at the, an off-ramp from a freeway. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The man was clever. He called each one of the debtors in one at a time so there'd be no witnesses. He had them change the bill in their own handwriting so he would not be implicated. Why did he do this? So that when he lost his job, these people would owe him. Maybe they would hire him. Or maybe they would network and help him find a new job. Now we come to the surprise in the parable. The surprise always yields the main point. We expect the owner to be furious. Instead, we read, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, some people find this parable difficult to understand. Is Jesus commending this man for dishonesty? Don't get lost in the weeds of the parable. Remember, Jesus is just telling a story to make a point. The point is still coming. Jesus is not praising this guy for dishonesty, but because he used forethought. He was shrewd. So here Jesus shares the second guardrail with regards to money. God evaluates you by how you handle money. Or I should say one of the ways God evaluates you is by how you handle money. If you're not a follower of Christ, it may have never crossed your mind that God cares about how you handle your money. He does. He evaluates how you handle money. Now, Jesus makes two observations about how God evaluates handling of money. First, this one may surprise you, people of this world are often more shrewd in dealing with money than Christians. So here's what Jesus says. He's getting to his point now. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus is using the more than argument. If non-believers are wise, then followers of Christ should be even more wise. Some Christians think that since God provides and material possessions do not last eternally, that it really doesn't matter how we manage our money. So non-believers, many times, are wiser in the way they manage money than believers are. A man was in a grocery store with his friend. This is a true story. When robbers came in and told everybody to take out their wallets and pull out all their cash, as they were grabbing the cash... The man felt a nudge from his friend in, the ba in his back. He says, I don't want a, a gun. I'm not, I don't want to be a hero. And the guy says, no, no, it's not that. It's the $25 that I owe you. He's pretty clever, huh? Jesus is commending this man for being shrewd. 
Many non-believers, maybe because they're not looking to God to provide for them, do better at planning, saving, and staying out of debt than Christians do. Christian financial consultant Larry Burkett said that he finds more debt among believers than he does among non-believers. Staying out of debt and saving are both functions of what we call delayed gratification. You give up today's desires for future benefits. A study was conducted on four-year-olds. They were put in a room with one marshmallow. And uh, the adult conducting the experiment said, you can eat the marshmallow when I go out of the room, or if you wait until I come back, you can have two marshmallows. Well, 40% of the kids immediately ate the marshmallow. 60% looked at it, smelled it, put their hands under their arms to practice more self-control. Well, then they followed up. 14 years later, when these kids were graduating from high school, and they found the 60% that were able to practice delayed gratification scored on average 200 points higher on their SAT scores. They were more well-adjusted and better off than the other ones. We must teach ourselves delayed gratification, to save before we buy so we can afford to buy. It used to be when we wanted something, we would save and then we'd buy it. But now in our credit card age, we buy and put it on our credit cards even when we may not have money to pay for it. It's understandable why we do that with all the ads. You deserve a break. You've earned it. You owe it to yourself. Buy it today, no money down, no payments for six months, and then it's 1.9% financing. You think, how can I lose on that deal? Debt is made glamorous by dressing it up in a tuxedo called credit. And we hear about credit if it's as, as if it's expected. Like everybody has to do it. You have to build up your credit score. It's, unavoid, it's, it, it's, it's unavoidable. It's painless. There are no negative consequences. They don't tell you about the negative consequences. We receive offers for credit cards all the time in the mail. Transfer your balance, 0% interest. What they don't tell you that is if, if, you, if you're late in paying one month, you get an exorbitant fee, and then they bump you up to 20 to 25% interest rate. People always insist, hey, it's no problem. I, I, I pay off my credit card at the end of the month every time. 70% fail to do so. People that are wise stay out of debt and practice saving. According to Social Security statistics, only 2% of Americans reach age 65 financially independent. In other words, they've paid off their mortgage and they have plenty in savings. God teaches that wise people save. Solomon writes, In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. He says, It's unwise not to save. Only a fool spends all that he earns. Solomon also writes, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Solomon loves this word sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. 
It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Wise people don't need someone standing over them to tell them to save. They do it unconsciously, automatically. They know intuitively that they shouldn't spend all that they earn, but must save some of it. So how much should you save? Christian financial consultant Dave Ramsey recommends 15%. Every time you get a paycheck, first person you pay is God, 10%. If that causes you to get a nosebleed, then like I said last week, well then pick something. Give God something. Give him 1% or 3% or 5%. The second person you pay is yourself. 15%. Again, you say, I could never save that much. Well, then pick an amount. A lot of people never pay themselves. The plan I recommend is the one taught by many Christian financial counselors, the 10, 15, 75% plan. Give 10% to God, save 15% in long-term savings, and live on the rest. Every year, year you earmark 15% for long-term savings. This is not a mad money fund. This is not your vacation fund or your new car fund or your remodel your house fund. This is money you put away and just let it build. So you have money working for you. It's foolish to work your whole life and never have money working for you. Many people spend all what they earn, even spend beyond what they earn and go into debt. So they never get on the positive side of interest. The first step to saving is to get rid of any debt that you have other than mortgage uh, debt. Use the 15% to pay off all these debts as quickly as possible. Then the second thing you want to do is to uh, build an uh, emergency fund. Six months, if you lose your job or hit a speed bump financially, you have six months. Non-believers, uh, then after you do that, then, then your 15% goes into your freedom fund. You're letting it build. Non-believers who are not likely to believe that God's providing for them often do better at this whole deal of staying out of debt and saving. Jesus says it's crazy that non-believers do better many times in managing money than Christians do. Now Jesus goes on to make a second application. If you are not trustworthy with money, God cannot entrust you with more important spiritual responsibilities. So now here's where he's getting to his point. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property over your own? Jesus uses the lesser to greater argument. If you are faithful in dealing with a small matter like money, then you can be trusted with a big responsibility like managing people. Jesus is saying that one of the ways God tests us is through how we handle our money. Jesus says, if you've not been faithful in dealing with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you're not obeying God's 
principles about managing money, earning, saving, staying out of debt, and spending. Well, then why would he put children under your care who are far more complex and valuable? The point Jesus is making is that what you do with your money determines how many other responsibilities God can give you. He's saying there's a direct relationship, according to the Bible, between what you do with your money and the spiritual depth in your life. What you do with your money, how you earn, save, spend, directly affects the spiritual blessing God can give to you. What am I saying? I'm saying that God evaluates you by how, or one of the ways God evaluates you is by how you handle money. He wants you to save before you buy. He wants you to attempt attempt to do long-term saving. He wants you to try to give a percentage back to him. I'm saying that if you're not managing your money wisely when it comes to earning, giving, saving, and spending, maybe you're not marriage ready. Maybe you're not parenting ready. Maybe you're not community group leader ready, discipleship group leader ready, or ministry team leader ready. When we hire someone to serve on our staff, I almost always ask them, what is your credit score? What's your debt level? And do you tithe? Why? Because how you manage money is part of being a leader in God's church. Last year, Jory and I felt that God was challenging us to give more to his kingdom work than we had ever given before. And I looked at Jory and I gulped. I said, you sure you want to do this? And she said, sure. Uh, Jory's always been more generous than I am. Uh, Freer to release money back to God than, than I feel. So we got done this year. And, you know, we'd given well north of 10%. And I was doing accounting to get ready for taxes. And I was amazed. We'd given this money... And yet we still had money to help a couple of our kids in significant ways. We had money to do some remodeling in our house. It was like God really took care of us. The reason I tell you this story is I feel so strongly that if we follow God in his instructions in the Bible about managing money, giving back to him a significant percentage, saving long term, staying out of debt, that he will bless us relationally, spiritually. Uh, the end of you know, New Year's Eve, we were talking about all the things we were thankful for in our family. It was just amazing. In this bad year of COVID, all the things we feel like that God had done. And we even feel that if we follow his principles, he will bless us financially. And so I have no problem in talking to you about this subject this morning. I feel like I'm doing you a favor in teaching what God speaks in his word. If you'd like to take God on his challenge, I encourage you to go to our website, portlandcommunitychurch.org. You go to the Give tab and tab down to the three-month challenge. You say, for three months, I choose to give this percentage of my income to God. In three months, if you're not happy with what God has done in your life, we will give your money back. And you've never given your life to Christ, You can do so right now as we pray. God does not want your money. 
He wants your life. Lord Jesus, thank you that you talked a lot about money. Almost half of your parables had to do with money because you know that we worry about it. We think about it. It's important. And you're very relevant. And Lord, uh, we want to respond to you today. I want to invite you to pray right now. And if you tell God you want to practice long-term saving, if you're not, or increase that amount, tell him you'll do that. If you want to increase what you're giving to God or start giving to God, maybe take this three-month challenge, tell him you'll do that. And if you've never given your life to Christ, why don't you tell him today while we pray? You believe he's the son of God and you want him to be your savior. You pray, everyone. Lord Jesus, thank you for teaching about things that do matter to us. The day-to-day matters. And we put our trust in you. Help us to obey your principles, and we will trust you with the results. In Jesus' name.